0: some of the solutions that's from grassroots. You're listening to Making Contact.
1: I'm Aisha Chowdhury, and today on Making Contact.
0: The more I understand, U.S. history, including early U.S. history, the clearer it is to me that this country, this economy, is a house that torture built.
1: You'll hear from Rebecca Gordon about the legacy of torture in the United States. We didn't just start locking people up and torturing them after 9-11. The United States has always used torture to control and to punish.
0: The real purpose of torture is establishing and maintaining the power of the regime that takes on the torture. They don't torture everybody. There are certain groups of people who are identified as legitimate targets of torture. And generally what makes them legitimate is that they are separated from the category of ordinary human beings. These are people who are subhuman in some way.
1: And by better understanding torture itself as a tactic of control, we can better understand how to fight back against places like Guantanamo and black sites. Here at Making Contact, we've been working on an in-depth piece about enhanced interrogation, which is a euphemism for torture, the kind of torture used in Guantanamo. Our longer piece explores the mechanics of enhanced interrogation and how it was designed by two military psychologists. And in the process of researching, we had a chance to talk to Rebecca Gordon, who is the author of Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the post 9 11 United States. Rebecca told us so much about the history of torture and what she's learned from decades of thinking about it that we wanted to air her interview by itself. Now, I want to give a trigger warning. We don't talk about torture techniques in much detail, but there are mentions of violence that some people might find disturbing. So please listen with discretion. Here's Salima Hamarani's interview with Rebecca Gordon. So, Rebecca, I wanted
2: to start this interview with a personal question because I was reflecting on the fact that we sort of have forgotten about torture and we've forgotten about black sites and we don't think about Guantanamo as much anymore. So why is this topic important to you? Why is this topic torture something that you can't stop thinking
0: about? That's a really good question and part of it has to do with my personal history and part of it has to do with the history of this country. So I was able to spend six months living in the war zones of Nicaragua in 1984 And during that time, it was a time when it was actually illegal for the U.S. to be spending money on the Contra War, the war that was attempting to overthrow the Sandinista government that had thrown out a dictator. But we knew that the U.S. was involved in that war. And my job was to go from town to town, way out in the campo, and interview people who had survived attacks from this Contra force that was being trained and armed by the CIA. And what became really clear was that the whole military strategy was one of terrorism, one of attacking unarmed civilians in their homes, torturing them, mutilating their bodies, leaving those bodies for other people to see and so be afraid. And I also had an opportunity to interview people who had been kidnapped by the Contra, taken to Honduras, tortured, and then brought into the Contra force and sent back into Nicaragua to do the same thing to other people. And so when September 11th happened, I knew that whatever the U.S. response was going to be, given that torture had been part of our our armamentum, of our capacity to fight for so long— that somebody was going to get tortured. So I said it was about my personal history, and that all is my personal history. But the other thing that makes this issue so important to me is that the more I understand about U.S. history, including early U.S. history, the clearer it is to me that you could say that this country, this economy, is a house that torture built because... It turns out that if you look at the history of enslavement in this country, that very early on, those first farmers in Virginia who brought the first Africans to Virginia to work in the tobacco fields figured out that unlike the indentured servants they had from England who were going to work seven or 10 years and then get a piece of land and their freedom, these people were going to work for the rest of their lives, and if they were lucky, so would their children and their children's children, and there was no deal for them. So there was no incentive for these people to work except to make their bodies physically hurt. And this was developed first in the tobacco fields, but then as the cotton business picks up, it's carried out to a a science If you continue to examine the history of this country, you can see that torture has been used especially to subdue and suppress and repress African-Americans, but also other groups of people who presented any kind of a threat to the regime of white supremacy. And that the capital that built the economy of this country would not have been accumulated. It would have been impossible without the torture that drove people to drive their bodies.
1: They drove their bodies because of torture, state-sanctioned torture, in the form of whipping and lynching in order to force people to work. This is an idea that Rebecca Gordon comes back to often in her interview. Torture is a tool, it has a purpose, although it's almost never used to get information, despite what we're told. So first, torture was used to force slaves to work, and later on, it was used abroad
2: So Rebecca, this history is so important because I've been struggling to understand our modern torture regime, what people are now calling enhanced interrogation, within the broader context of U.S. history,
0: which is also a colonial history, right? Absolutely. And that's the other thing, our huge economic expansion that happened in The post-World War II period in which the United States working class, through the use of unions and the growth of working people's power, was able to wrest from the government and from their owners a living wage and certain welfare things that we took for granted that don't even exist anymore. But this huge industrial expansion was made possible in part because we had available extremely cheap Raw materials that came from our colonies and our neo colonial, quote, possessions, places like, for example, Chile, which had an abundant supply of copper, which we needed in order to prosecute the war in Vietnam, literally for the bullet casings, but also the things that built our planes, trains, and automobiles. A lot of those raw materials came to us very cheaply because. We put, or maintained in power, elites in these colonial possessions that use torture systematically as a routine way of keeping their own power. Torture as an institutional practice only does its work in the larger society when people know it's happening. If it's completely in secret and nobody knows, it doesn't work. Because what you're doing by torturing that one member of an organization is that you are poisoning the relationships within the entire organization. You release that person and now everyone's looking at each other like, what did she say? Who did she give up? Who did she betray? And the suspicion just builds inside the organization and pulls it apart from inside. And furthermore, when you see people who have been broken out there in the world, it makes other people afraid to resist the regime. They don't torture everybody. There are certain groups of people who are identified as legitimate targets of torture. And generally what makes them legitimate is that they are separated from the category of ordinary human beings. These are people who are subhuman in some way. So, for example, in Chile, during the Pinochet regime, they called the people that they tortured humanoid. Mm.
2: But they were leftists.
0: They were leftists. They were Marxists, exactly. And so that made them humanoids rather than actual human beings.
1: Here in the U.S., the targets of torture were clear. They were not white. Since, as Rebecca Gordon argues, the system of power that torture was designed to maintain was white supremacy itself.
0: The idea was that only a beast would allow himself to be treated this way. Therefore, these people are not really human in the sense that we think of human beings. Therefore, we can treat enslaved Africans however we, that is white people, choose to do. And so part of Torture's work in the mind of the white supremacist is it demonstrates to us, to the white people, just how degraded these people are, who are the targets of torture.
2: Right. And I also think about places like the Philippines. Yes. And we kind of lost that history, but things like waterboarding were huge in the Philippines. And in fact, we actually developed a lot of our torture mechanisms there, fighting the insurgency.
0: Exactly right. And that was at the very beginning of the 20th century. And they used to call it the water cure, and we developed these techniques precisely in the context of this colonial and then neo-colonial expansion that the United States has had in its mind ever since the idea of the Monroe Doctrine and Manifest Destiny.
1: The Monroe Doctrine and Manifest Destiny were both ideas about the supremacy of the United States. They served to justify military intervention in Latin America and to justify expanding the boundaries of the country by force. And torture was part of our imperial expansion from the very beginning. But torture wasn't only used abroad, and it's not just a historical oddity.
2: You know, this history is interesting because a lot of the people that I've talked to have said, well, you know, it's not like the torture of the past. Enhanced interrogation is different. It's new, and partially that's because the U.S. is doing the torturing themselves.
0: Okay, that is a change in a sense. But it depends on how you identify torture. A lot of what would qualify as torture to this very day goes on inside our jails and our prisons. And this is something that... Solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is a perfect example of terrible psychological torture, which within a couple of weeks can produce psychosis in many people, but also physical torture. They don't count as torture because the people to whom it is done are considered to be criminals and therefore non human or subhuman or different from ordinary. They are part of the legitimate targets of torture. The other place where torture has gone on in plain view is in our police stations to get confessions from people. So people who tell you that this is new just don't know US history. And if you look too at who was it that designed Guantanamo? The army didn't have people to design Guantanamo. And they brought reservists who worked with the Chicago police to Guantanamo to design the prison there. Similarly, your listeners may have heard about the outrages that happened at the Iraqi prison that's called Abu Ghraib. And Abu Ghraib was Saddam Hussein's most infamous prison where people were tortured And in their brilliance, the U.S. occupiers decided, oh, here's a prison ready-made. This is where we'll keep detainees. And, of course, everyone knew already who was Iraqi, what went on in Abu Ghraib. So they brought in this group of soldiers who tortured people. The real torture, the worst torture, was actually going on upstairs, where the CIA and CIA contractors even killed people. But these people were prison guards. I did not know that. Yep. And in fact, there's a famous email that Charles Grainer, who was sort of the ringleader, he was a sergeant, sent home, which said, the Christian in me knows it's wrong, but the corrections officer in me loves to see a grown man piss himself. The
1: corrections officer in me loves to see a grown man piss himself. You might assume that men like Charles Grainer are unusual, an aberration. But he's not. For torture to be used in black sites across the world, we need a lot of interrogators. And as Salima Hamarani explored with Rebecca Gordon, we also need a lot of people who think that torture is okay. And that means they have to be trained and reprogrammed to believe in torture, maybe even to find it thrilling.
2: You know, like you, I've become a little obsessed with this topic. I think because I want to as a human being, try and understand what's happening morally. And I've been thinking a lot about professionalism, the way professionalism allows us to justify immoral behavior because we're, quote, doing our jobs.
0: Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And it really makes sense in the way that torturers are trained. And if you look at how people are trained in Greece under the junta, how people were trained in Chile, in Brazil, in Argentina, in any place where there's been a torture regime, and I would argue also in the United States, there is a real similarity in that training. And the idea is that first you are yourself as a new recruit exposed to brutalization. You are beaten by your upperclassmen. You are humiliated. You are tortured, in effect. And once you've survived that ordeal, you emerge on the other side of it as a person who thinks of himself, and it's mostly men, as a superior human being who has survived this and is now in a position to turn around and do the same thing to other people. So there's this guy that I wrote about in Mainstreaming Torture who was a torturer under the Chileans, and he was interviewed by a Costa Rican reporter, a woman, who went to him where he was in jail and talked to him about what he had done. And the kinds of things that he said were, oh, electric current, that's not really torture. He completely minimized the things he had done. But then he was so proud because he had been trained at the U.S. School of the Americas. And at that school, he pulled up his pant leg and showed her the burn scars from where he had been tortured with electric current.
1: you've been hearing from Rebecca Gordon, author of Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the Post-9-11 United States. This is just one interview from a longer investigation we're working on about the link between professional psychology and torture, and we need your support to help us complete that program. We don't receive corporate or government funding, instead, we rely on you. Please make a donation right now at radioproject.org. Any amount of support helps, thank you. Welcome back to Making Contact. We've been listening to Rebecca Gordon talking about torture. In the first half of the show, we looked at the way the state has used torture to maintain power. In the second half of our show, Rebecca Gordon explains how torture was used specifically to target Muslims after 9-11. Here's Salima Hamarani interviewing Rebecca Gordon. You know,
2: some of the things I've read, testimonies from people who work inside Guantanamo, and black sites... Sounds like something out of the Spanish Inquisition, like a crusade.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a crusade. I mean, George W. Bush said that before somebody told him to shut up and (laughs) use another word. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And in the United States, Islam or Muslim is a racialized category. In the imaginary of white people in this country, a Muslim is a person of color. And then, then white people attribute all kinds of bad ideas to Muslims, like it's a violent religion. It's, but really, those are racialized ideas. They have nothing to do with the actual content of Islam. They have to do with our ideas about what our being white people's ideas about what brown people are capable of.
1: Rebecca Gordon had been tracking the way governments have used torture since the 1980s and the U.S. Contra War in Nicaragua. In fact, she had seen firsthand the way the U.S. had taught other countries how to torture dissidents. So after 9-11, she says she wasn't surprised by the fact that we opened black sites and prisons like Guantanamo. In fact, she expected it.
0: I knew that somebody was going to get tortured. And it only took like six weeks. On the 5th of November... A liberal historian named Jonathan Alter, who also ran a column in Newsweek, wrote a column that was called, Time to Think About Torture. And the people he wanted to torture were not any detainees that had been caught in the war in Afghanistan, because there wasn't a war in Afghanistan yet. They weren't people from Iraq, because there was no war in Iraq yet. These were people who had been caught up and picked up by the FBI inside the United States who had visas, some of them expired, who were Muslims. And there were about 600 of them. And they were held, some of them for as long as six months, in a jail in Brooklyn, New York. And you could read about this in the New York Times. This isn't a secret, but it's history people have forgotten. And they were tortured. They were chained to radiators. They were put outdoors in the February weather in bare feet and hospital gowns. They were beaten with electric cords. At least one of them was raped anally with a police flashlight. All of this literally within view of the Statue of Liberty, not to prevent a future attack, but as a crime investigation tool to find out who was responsible for what he called the greatest crime on American soil.
2: But why would these immigrants know
0: anything about it? Well, that's the thing. They didn't, of course. So that just becomes plain racist. Well, absolutely. Racism and Islamophobia. And so these people were tortured. They were held. No lawyers. Their families and friends didn't know where they were. If it had happened in some Latin American country, we would have said they were disappeared. Eventually... Some of them were deported because they had overstayed their visas. And not one of them was ever accused of anything to do with terrorism. And yet they were tortured.
1: According to the New York Times, 762 undocumented immigrants were jailed in the weeks and months after 9-11, most of whom had no connections to terrorism. Yet they were treated as if they did. Within two years, almost all detainees were deported. But most of the worst abuses happened abroad, in secret locations called black sites, where detainees were tortured for years and years. They were beaten waterboarded, bombarded with noise, prevented from sleeping, force-fed through tubes, sexually humiliated, kept in the freezing cold, made to crouch in boxes the size of coffins, held in solitary confinement, hung from the ceiling by the wrists behind their backs, prevented from having any contact with the outside world. As one current detainee, Amar El Balochi said, The way they treat you, they try to separate your mind from your body. To this day, we don't have a lot of information on what happened in black sites. Places with names like the Salt Pit, the Cat's Eye, and the Darkness.
2: How many people have died in black sites? Do we know No. under torture?
0: No, we don't know. We know about some cases. We know about Gul Rahman, for example, who died of exposure. We don't know who died in the salt pit. We don't know. We know about one person who died upstairs from Abu Ghraib because in order to get his body out of the prison, they had packed him in ice. They put him on a gurney and put a fake IV in his arm and and rolled him out as if he were still alive and was going for treatment. But no, we don't know and we never will know. I mean... It's possible that some of that information is in the actual 6,000-page report that the Senate Intelligence Committee produced. But as far as we know, there were only two or three paper copies of that report, and they're locked up somewhere. And we're never going to see that. And the CIA is one of 17 different agencies that are involved in national security and in intelligence gathering. The Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, operated their own torture sites, which haven't been investigated at all, except to some extent by Jeremy Scahill, who is an independent and amazing journalist. So they had their own Camp NEMA, it was called, which stood for Nasty-Assed Military Area. The signs supposedly that were up on the walls in this place said, No blood, no foul."
2: Right. And, you know, Guantanamo is one example. But we don't actually know if – I think all the black sites have been closed. In theory. In theory. But, you know, we had some floating black sites that I I don't know
0: about. Exactly. We don't. I mean, Obama ordered them closed. I think President Obama also discovered very quickly just what the limits of presidential power are, especially the power of a black president. Yeah, we don't know. I mean – I'd like to think all the CIA's black sites were closed. But what about
2: the JSOC ones? Yeah, who
0: knows? Probably not. Well, in fact, we know they haven't been. We know that, for example, the CIA is still assisting in Somalia in training Somalian police in interrogation of terrorists that have been captured in Somalia. We know that the U.S. is operating all over Africa and supposedly fighting terrorism in all of these places. And we, we have no idea what's going on in those places.
1: The portions of the Senate report that were released found that the CIA lied about the effectiveness of enhanced interrogation. The kinds of torture were far more brutal than policymakers were led to believe. And the CIA actively avoided congressional oversight of the program. Still, five years later, though many regret the programs, none of the architects have been charged with war crimes. But Rebecca Gordon thinks there are ways to start holding people accountable, starting with the International Criminal Court.
0: So it has been suggested that there are people who might be put on trial, if not for torture, at least for other kinds of war crimes committed in the context of the war in Afghanistan. The U.S., of course, wouldn't recognize that. And the problem with the ICC is that it has really lost a lot of its credibility because the only people it has ever tried are former heads of African states. And so it's problematic. And the interesting thing about the ICC is that it was actually the outgrowth of what the people who put together the trials at Nuremberg hoped for, which is that there would be an ongoing venue in which people who were guilty of war crimes who couldn't be tried in their own countries for whatever reason could be put on trial internationally.
1: But that's not the only option.
0: There's the possibility of people's tribunals. And this was, there's a precedent for this from the Vietnam War. Jean-Paul Sartre and various other people, Bertrand Russell, very famous European intellectuals, created a tribunal in 1967 that put the U.S. on trial for what it was doing in Vietnam.
1: And then there's the civil courts which might seem like a strange place to try the U.S. for torture. But recently, the psychologists who designed Enhanced Interrogation, named Bruce Jessen and James Mitchell, were sued. They were sued by two people who'd survived the torture program in a place called Cobalt and the brother of one man who died in Cobalt. And that's not the only known case of people using the civil courts.
0: This is actually sort of, there's a tradition of people going to civil court when they haven't been able to use criminal courts to get restitution. Mahar Arar, who was a Canadian who was stopped at Kennedy Airport and shipped off to, of all places, Syria, when we were still friends with Bashar al-Assad instead of enemies of Bashar al-Assad, and was held and tortured for 10 months. He received an apology from the Canadian government, because he's a Canadian citizen, The U.S. has never apologized.
1: The suit against psychologists Mitchell and Jessen never actually went to court. The plaintiffs settled, but through the process, the public found out massive amounts of information on the black site Cobalt. And at least it forced Mitchell and Jessen to give depositions.
0: I think if what we're after is as much exposure and truth, right, we're not going to get reconciliation, but maybe we can get some truth. Yeah, I think that the civil courts are actually a really good place to do that. And I really think the key is organizing. And wherever you are, the key is to find your local organization or national organization that's doing this work and find a way to support them, even if it's just with money. What happens at court and what happens on the streets, those things can work in tandem. It's not an either or. It's a both and.
1: You were just listening to our Making Contact producer, Salima Hamarani, interviewing Rebecca Gordon about torture. And we're working on a more in-depth piece about the link between professional psychology and torture. So make sure to keep in touch so you're able to hear when it airs. And we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on enhanced interrogation? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making contact. And on Instagram, we're making contact radio project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Salima Hammurani, Sabine Blazin, and Lisa Rudman. I'm Aisha Chowdhury. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.